Hi, I'm Carmen LeBurge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LeBurge. Encouraging you to live as an ambassador of God's kingdom in the world. This is Mornings with Carmen LeBurge on Faith Radio. If we're gonna fly, we fly like eagles, arms now wide. If we're gonna fear, we fear no evil. We will rise by your power. We will go by your spirit. We are bold. If we're gonna stand, we stand as giants. If we're gonna walk, we walk as lions. Good. Morning. It is hour two of Mornings with Carmen here on the Faith Radio Network. Thank you so much for the privilege of spending some time together today. All right, Dale, happy birthday. I hope you are um, having a Green Bay cheesecake today. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Sometimes um, somebody that interacts on a very regular basis on the text line shares information about someone else on the text line, and I have to say to myself, you know what? This is a community, and we're going to do it. So, happy birthday, Dale. This is your birthday song. It isn't very long. Hey! All right, there you go. Um, Let's be encouraging one another. If you don't interact with me on the text line, I don't know why not. It's always open during the show, 877-933-2484. Good morning to Mary and Jim and Walter and Lori and Roxanne um, and Patrick and Gladdy, on and on and on. Good morning to those of you who have been on the text line this morning. And for those of you who uh, want to interact with me there, you are more than welcome to do so. Okay, do you remember report card day? I mean, like back in grade school, there was like a day when you got your report card. Um, I don't even know if they still like have report card day. And so I'm going to ask Paul Perot, whose wife is a school teacher. Paul, is there still like report card day? Do kids like still physically get a report card? Uh, some do. Usually it's via email these days. That's what I was thinking. Yeah, That's what I was yeah. thinking. Or you like log on to get it. Or like, log you, on, like, yeah. Yeah, go into some, yeah. So um, I remember report card day back in the day. I probably somewhere have in a box in the attic, um, you know, my report cards, right? Somewhere, right? Do you have yours? Well, the United States of America just got its collective report card yesterday. And let's just say um, there was no ice cream uh, after dinner last night. There was no like, hey, let's celebrate the, the nation's report card. Um, no, because it, it is a really bad. Like, what's the worst report card you ever got? Well, yesterday, the nation got a report card that was worse than that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, the nation's report card says that... Um, We are now at pre-1992 levels in terms of math and reading. So math scores dropped by the most uh, in 53 years of testing. So math math scores declined among eighth graders across all racial and ethnic groups um, and among lower and higher achieving students. Uh, So it doesn't really matter where you are on the socioeconomic or ethnic uh, diversity range in the United States of America, um, both fourth graders and eighth graders in this uh, in this assessment lost ground. Average scores declined in both reading and math um, across all states and across all um, socioeconomic um, areas. Like all uh, the whole thing is just arrows pointed in a negative direction. It's called the nation's report card if you want to check it out. So what do we do now? Well, um, increasingly, people are taking more responsibility at home 
um, for their kids' education, homeschooling, homeschool co-ops, church-based options, um, where, you know, little pods of moms and dads get together and co-educate their children, charter schools, private schools. Um, and then also, you know, we're going to have to have comprehensive reform of our public education system. Like that time has clearly arrived. Um, and and sometimes, and in fact, oftentimes, help has to come from the outside. Well, help is coming from the outside um, in the form of more than a billion dollar commitment from the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. So their foundation is going to invest more than a billion dollars in K through 12 math initiatives just over the next four years. Part of that is going to be helping schools um, actually um, hire and retain competent teachers, but also, you know, prioritizing math in terms of um, of education and making the subject of math um you know, a real area of investment, uh, you know, in the next four years. And you say to yourself, well, four years isn't a very long time. If you're in fourth grade, four years gets you to middle school. If you're in eighth grade, four years gets you to high school graduation. So when we're talking about education, sometimes we are talking about fairly short periods of time in terms of a need for massive investment and and change because kids can't wait that long. I mean, they just literally can't wait that long. Um, So how might you invest in your local school? How might you, you know, drop in and um, and say to the principal, what do you need and how can I help? Um, what would that look like? Um, instead of just complaining about what's going on educationally in the United States of America and in your own community, what might you do today to make a difference? Bill and Melinda Gates are doing what they can do. We need to do what we can do as well. Dr. Brett Nix is going to join us next from the Christian Medical, oh, is it, yeah, we got Brett today or we got Dr. Barrows? Oh, we, we got, got Brett. Today? Brett. All right, great. Right, that's fantastic. Dr. Brett Nix is going to join us next from the Christian Medical and Dental Association. And we're going to talk about what's going on, not only with COVID and the flu, but everything else. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Doctor, my eyes have seen the years and the slow parade of fears without crying. Now I want Joining us now, Dr. Brett Nix. You can uh, you can find Brett um, online. You can also find him at the Christian Medical and Dental Association. Good morning, sir. Good morning, Carla. How are you? Boy, what an opening you had just before this. Goodness, wow. I know. Math. Yeah. Math. Yeah. Two plus two is still four, but not everybody apparently knows that. So, oh, my know. goodness. And I tell you, that jumps right into uh, health headlines, too, because I'll tell you, uh, too often what we end up finding is that disengagement in the classroom continues at home. And when, when kids are disengaged at home, they don't do well in the classroom. There's so many different things that are there, and a lot of it has to do with health. And again, you know, we see this, uh, we see this every single day, whether in the emergency department, whether in our uh, primary care clinics or otherwise. Uh, significant challenges, and sometimes we just focus on the wrong stuff at school. We're not st- we're not focusing on educating kids for the future. We're focusing on social conditions that are just more confusing than anything else. Yeah, that's um that's actually what people on our text line were pointing out as well. Could the problem be the what we're teaching and the way we're teaching it? Yep, mm-hmm, exactly. Um, so when we um when we talk about things that we're facing uh, in terms of our health in uh, in the world today. 
COVID is, you know, not gone away. Now we're just living with it um, in the same way that we live with the seasonal flu. And so that season is about upon us. But I got to tell you, among my friends, pretty much everybody has a kid with RSV. So talk with us about the worry over this triple-demic season. Absolutely. Well, you know, a lot of things come with the fall. You get the beautiful change in the weather. You get the changing of the leaves. And as all of us anticipated, it also ends into, into flu season. Well, this year we happen to have RSV, which is a, a respiratory syncytial virus. And again, it's just like any of the other viruses that you see. But typically we don't see RSV until usually the middle of the winter, uh, sometimes in the late winter, somewhere in January, February. And, but this year it came full force very early, early in September. Uh, and yeah, if you have kids under the age of two, you know it. But you can see the respiratory syncytial virus all the way through adults, although adults just minimal symptoms. And when you think about it, it's difficult to figure out RSV versus others uh, as far as the illnesses until they get really severe. And what you're going to see is a typical thing. RSV classically is about five days long. It can extend and the cough can persist for weeks. But typically you have the usual, a little bit of a runny nose, a cough. Uh, You may have some sneezing associated with it and some fevers. And then for those kids that have the predilection, they have maybe some underlying lung issues, uh, maybe they were premature at birth. Maybe they're an infant at this stage. There's a large wheezing component of this that really becomes problematic. And it's when that wheezing is added into the mix that uh, you see this issue with some concerns with that tendency and increased work of breathing. And with that, sometimes the infection then gets down inside what we call the bronchioles, the areas deeper inside of the lungs, and cause something of inflammation there that we call bronchiolitis. And then again, that can actually go to pneumonia. You know, the vast majority of the time, this is not an issue, you know, upper respiratory congestion or otherwise. It's fine to see the primary care doctor. And right now, they're going to be saying, well, we'll test for RSV, we'll test for flu, we'll test for COVID, because there could be any of them. Uh, at this time, we're seeing just so much more RSV. And recognize that if you have a really young child, maybe an infant or otherwise, dehydration is a big part of this, because when they're coughing, when they're sneezing, when they're not feeling well and having fevers, they become dehydrated. And again, the most important aspect of this, it's supportive care. Uh, but if you have a child that starts having increasing work of breathing um, and you've already seen your primary care doctor and they say, boy, goodness, I think uh, you need to go to the emergency department, recognize the care is supportive. Uh, but some kids require hospitalization. Some kids require, you know, oxygen therapy to go ahead and help them get through it. But RSV is real. And boy, it hit hard so far this fall. All right, so fluids and rest. Um, and then what is this uh, feed a fever, starve a cold business? I don't really know. What, what about food when people are sick? You know, the most, it's a great question. It depends on the age of the kid, uh, the adult or otherwise. You know, the most important aspect of this is issues of dehydration. Um, mm. But typically what ends up happening is we have a decreasing amount of feeding. And with the young kids, it's easy. How many times have you had to change their diaper? Uh, is the urine concentration, is it, is it much more smelly than usual? Is it more yellow than it should be? Uh, those are typical signs of dehydration. And it doesn't take much at all for a young child to get dehydrated. That's the most important thing. Uh, if you look across the world, the WHO sets a standard, which is a, hey, your, your primary job when a kid has symptoms like this or has issues with dehydration is to sit there and give small amounts um, you know, of diluted apple juice. Some people use Pedialyte. There's all kinds of different things. Uh, but small amounts frequently. And it is literally, you give a small amount, you follow it again, 10, 15 minutes later, small amount, small amount, because we don't want to distend the stomach because then they'll end up vomiting it back up and you'll uh, Mm. be chasing your tail again. 
Oh, that is so helpful. All right, we're going to um, return to our conversation here with Dr. Brett Nix in just a moment. Um, we're going we're gonna to talk about mental health and the effects of social media. I mean, it's not probably going to surprise you that there's a pretty strong link between social media and depression. We're going to talk about that next. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. I'm Carmen LeBurge, and this is Faith Radio. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen. As you know, this is a rebroadcast of the live radio show we do every morning on the Faith Radio Network. There's a lot going on at Faith Radio. I don't want you to miss any of it. So check out the free resources just waiting for you and for you to share with others at MyFaithRadio.com. One of the things I would like for you to consider is becoming a Faith Radio ambassador. We talk about walking our faith out into the world that God so loves and doing so in ways that honor Jesus. Well, that's because we are ambassadors of the kingdom of God. You can become a Faith Radio ambassador today and help us get the word out to others about this and other programs on the Faith Radio Network. Uh, We will supply everything that you need to share with others, and you can sign up to be a Faith Radio ambassador at MyFaithRadio.com. I will trust where you lead. I will trust when I All right, we're continuing our conversation with Dr. Brett Nix. Um, Brett, not, maybe not a surprise to anybody, but um, a new study finds that social media is strongly linked to depression. Yeah, I don't know that anybody is surprised by that headline. And, you know, if we were to ask people in general what they would think, I think they probably could have come up with it themselves. You know, this is another study made out of uh, several different universities looking at this concept around social media use. And this one particularly looked at young adults, and it said, hey, what is, what is the duration of time, if they were to use it, uh, that it might have some effect? And they focused on those, and it might seem like a lot of time, but they said somewhere in this five-hour-per-day range. And that doesn't mean continuous. That just means back and forth, checking, interacting, and that what, uh, which happens to be actually pretty common. What they found is this thing that uh, we know is a, what's called a problematic social comparison syndrome. And, of course, what do you expect? Everybody is in this highlight reel on social media, and many people end up seeing what they perceive to be someone's life, uh, but it really isn't. And then what they found is in this space, within six months, six months of intermittent use over that duration of time, uh, people were clinically depressed. They met the criteria for clinical depression. Um, they had increased negative feelings of self. They had increased issues as far as insomnia. They had increased issues associated with depression. And we know this to be true, and it's probably even more amplified because of COVID, because it creates, it creates a sense of isolation even though people believe that they're connected even more so. And what we end up finding is it's because of what we know to be true. God created us to be people that are face-to-face with each other. This is a lack of person-to-person contact. And we've talked about it before. We talked about it as far as heart recovery last time. It is a chemical that our body releases when we are in connection with people, when we receive a hug, when we are in, in embrace of people. That does not happen uh, through a digital device uh, to the degree that we would like. And again, the social media calamity that we see continues to go forward. Uh, But again, another study here uh, that social media, yeah, it's here. It's here to stay, but it has to be balanced with face-to-face engagement. We have to be in community. That's what we're called to be. Uh, And social media in and of itself continues to draw our younger uh, generation, both those that are in the uh, teen years and younger, uh, into these areas of depression. And we see it all the time. Um, I want to pivot and I want to talk about some um, hot cultural topics. Um, 
we can talk about abortion, but that just seems like a just an ongoing um, conversation. And I know it has an impact on medical professionals, particularly in states where, you know, the law has changed pretty dramatically since the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade um, in, in the Dobbs decision. Um, and so maybe just brief us in in terms of like medical students and what's happening in terms of preparation to to serve as medical professionals in sort of this new Dobbs era of um, of abortion in America. Yeah, you know, you bring forward a, a great question. There's a lot of dialogue right now. This is a time of year where uh, medical students are going through the application process for the coming year to, to match into a residency. And for those that are going into family medicine or then have an interest in obstetrics, delivering babies and being a full uh, spectrum family practitioner and those that are going into uh, OBGYN, you know, there's a question as to if, there, if you are part of a state uh, that has now banned abortions uh, to whatever degree that may be, is this going to have a negative impact on the medical education of those going into the specialties? Will it influence the decisions of where people will try to match and what states they'll go to? And, you know, the dialogue is there, which is, okay, if we are stopping abortions, the number of these procedures that are going to be performed, of course, will precipitously drop. But we're talking about in circumstances where this is a young, developing baby that has no voice for itself, it is a problem. However, what is not being discussed to the same degree is there are a very large number of things that we call ectopic pregnancies, pregnancies that uh, take place outside of the uterus and will not survive. There are miscarriages. Uh, all of these are the same types of practices and the same types of procedures that those that go into this specialty will be able to perform and learn from. And so, you know, there's a lot of dialogue as to are we doing a disservice at the same time, we have to look at is the same procedures, the same processes will be there from a training perspective. Will it be in the same level of numbers? No, of course not. But at the same point in time, this is a common process that we see on a day-to-day basis. I work in the emergency department. We see people who are coming in that are having uh, inevitable miscarriages. Um, you know, we call them different, uh, different names. Some people will call them a threatened abortion, but it's not the same as we're talking about in the, uh, the, the legal terms. Um, but it's where a pregnancy is started, but the pregnancy is not going to succeed. Uh, the baby is not alive, but developed to a certain point and had, uh, you know, had a uh, interuterine fetal demise or a death in, in process. Those still have to go through the, either a medical or a chemical procedure to go ahead and allow um, for the body to go ahead and go through the transition uh, for the uterus to be clean. And then sometimes it still requires the same process for those that are being trained. It's a balancing act. And right now, the numbers game is really what people are concerned about. As far as the quality of care and what should be there, I think what we're doing is we're recognizing the value of life. And there are many ways to train in that space. We just have to look at what that's going to be and make sure that we embrace it. Um, I think that when we think about our own like our own care and the quality of care we would want somebody in our own family um, to experience. I have a friend in Boston whose sister, you know, carried a baby to term. Everything all along the way seemed, you know, absolutely perfectly fine. Um, But the baby was born with no brain activity. And I think that when we talk about this topic and this subject matter, um, you know, if that had been known anywhere prior to, you know, full term, um, you know, maybe she would have been able to deliver that baby when the baby was physically somewhat smaller, um, right? Because, I mean, you know, delivering a full-term baby that you know is is not alive. 
um, right? The, the, the trauma to the individual and the family and on and on and on. I mean, I just, so I think that there are, there are ways in which we need to take a deep breath. I mean, everybody listening knows that I'm pro-life from conception to natural death, but if we're talking about um, a pre-born human who is also not alive, um, right? We have these real challenges for the conversations before us, and uh, none of this is simple, and we, and I think we ought not oversimplify it. And so thank you for your willingness to, um, to talk with us in an ongoing way about the challenges we're facing. I want to give you an opportunity, um, Brett, to talk about a resource that's available at the Christian Medical and Dental Association website, cmda.org. Talk with us about this two-part series on the myths of the sexual revolution. That's a great, uh, a great lead-in, and I'll tell you what, for those of you who might not be familiar, the Christian Medical Dental Association is a international organization based here in the U.S. that is here to support those that are called into medical service and dental service. And one of the greatest challenges that you have in this area is that many times the processes that come across uh, within our social platforms and society go against what we believe uh, to be true from a health perspective, and it's awesome uh, when we have resources that are available. One of the resources that we're talking about is a, part, a two-part series that talks about the myths of the sexual revolution. And what this is, is it really gets into the discussion of how do we get to where we are in society today uh, around our misconceptions, around sexuality, uh, around uh, biology. And more importantly, recognizing that uh, it started with slow movements that many, many did not recognize but really started to catch steam in the 1960s and onward. Uh, and with that process, also along the lines of the understanding of, you know, the gift that God gives us to be able to have a man and a woman uh, go through conception of a child and to be able to bring it to term and bring it to life and the, and the incredible gift that that is and understanding what that looks like and how over time that has been mirrored, uh, has probably been marred by a lot of the things that have gone on in society. Uh, most notably today, one of the greatest challenges related to that uh, is this uh, epidemic related to pornography and the incredible negative impact it has on creating what is often seen now as a, as a violent act around uh, the beautiful sexuality that God has created with intercourse and the ability to, uh, to conceive children. Uh, and this is a two-part series that really gets into the details in the background that says, hey, this is what sexuality is. This is what it represents. This is the amazing thing that it is. And this is how, over time, we may have lost track of, of, of that understanding uh, and what that means to us in our daily life. But it's also a, an incredible resource, not just for the individual, uh, but for the parent and for the provider, uh, so that you can have good conversations uh, with your children, with your family, to really understand the complexities of things going on today. Um, Brett, wow. Um, so just so much rich um, conversation and information. Remind us how people connect with you, can connect with you personally and directly online. Yeah, you know, it's, a, it's always an opportunity for conversation. You know, one of the things I love to do is I love to breathe life into people. I love to reach out to people and challenge you where you are to lead in your community. That could be leading in your home. It could be leading uh, in, in uh, your workplace or your environment, uh, your town, etc. And the best way to reach me is through a website where I write blogs on leadership. And it's www.brettnixmd.com. And, and to get to the blog, it's just backslash blog. Uh, and there's tremendous amounts of resources there, ways of lifting you up, ways of encouraging you. Uh, and, and with all things, again, the best way to do that is to continue to plug in and challenge yourself. I love it. 
brettnixmd.com. Brett, as always, um, thank you so much, and have a blessed day. Thanks, Carmen. It's always a pleasure to be on, online with you and everyone else. Have a great day. Likewise. Well, hey, let's take a break um, for Breakpoint with John Stone Street. Hey, do you know anybody who God has recovered from something? Yeah, addiction or some other life-controlling issue. I mean, we are all, as sinners, recovered by God, but we don't often think about um, recovery in the ways that George Wood leads us to think about them. Uh, George is a former addict, a suicide survivor. He has dedicated his life to radically grace-laced, Christ-centered recovery. Uh, He's the founder of the Timothy Initiative and Sober Truth Project Ministries. He's also the author of The Uncovery, Understanding the Power of Community to Heal Trauma. And he joins us next. I'm thrilled to welcome George Wood uh, to Mornings with Carmen. George lives in my hometown of Tampa, Florida, and he's friends with a bunch of my friends, including one of my dearest friends from high school, Michael Maddox, who's a regular listener here to Mornings with Carmen and connected me with George. So, George, welcome to Mornings with Carmen. Wow, it's just uh, great to finally be be here. I've been hearing about you for a long time. <laughs> I, I know. Thanks I can hardly me. wait. To, oh, absolutely. I can hardly wait to meet you in person. Um, let's let's just start here. The uncovery. Obviously, we're replacing the words recovery with the word uncovery, understanding the power of community to heal trauma. What's the difference between recovery and uncovery? Just in the simplest form, I think of recovery as often it meant to be a person in addiction or or even struggling with mental health, trying to get back to the person they were before they destroyed their lives. And obviously that person wasn't enough to keep them in the first place. So we have to go deeper than that. I believe, as we see in scripture, that uh, before the foundations of the world, God called us holy, perfect, and blameless, as we see in, in Colossians. And that's the identity that we're trying to uncover, who God called us to be before we were even in this world. There's a destiny for all of us. And if we could uncover that rather than trying to recover who we already were, That's a whole different way of attacking the problem of of looking at a person's life. And I've seen so much more uh, success when a person realizes they're not trying to earn something. They're trying to receive, accept and live out something that God has already given them. Um, so this is not just, you know, a story of that you've experienced in the lives of other people. This is your own story. So could you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. I, my own personal journey uh, began uh, at a very young age where, um, you know, abuse of all forms uh, entered my life. I was uh, a child of a broken home where uh, my father had left my mother for a younger woman, and I was the youngest of five children by a long way. So I was the, the consummate mistake, and he was ready to move on. But when he left my mother, he took my oldest brother with him 
And a year later on a construction accident, my, my brother died and it was my father's job site. So all that trauma that they didn't know how to work through was, was put towards me. And so from first grade on, after the death of my oldest brother, the divorce of my parents, both my parents went into their own problems with addiction and mental health struggles. And I was left fending for myself and it caused me to seek out uh, acceptance, understanding, identity in all of the wrong places, um, which led to me being, you know, sexually abused at a young age, physically, psychologically abused uh, throughout my life. And by the time I was in my, my teens, I had, you know, turned to sex myself and, um, you know, drugs and alcohol. Um, and then in 10th grade, I attempted suicide for the first time. And that just sort of became the paradigm in which I lived. And, you know, I, I like to say that throughout the 90s, I, I don't even remember them. It was a blur because of um, all of the pain pills that I was on and the the multiple suicide attempts and, you know, really completely lost and managed to find a um, a wife that, uh, you know, accepted me and, um, and then my mental health took a turn for the worst and, uh, she wasn't ready to accept that. So I lost everything. And in my thirties found myself homeless and in and out of psychiatric wards, in and out of detox units, um, and literally walking down a road as the, the old story goes and, and cried out to a God that I didn't know, but I believed existed and said, you know, either kill me or do something different because I don't think that, you know, you're in doing this for your own enjoyment. So just either end it or, or do something different. And it was at that moment that I actually received a phone call from a, from a guy that I'd met in a detox a year before uh, and, it, and he said, hey, man, are you OK? I, I just had this weird feeling that, you know, God wanted me to call you to check on you that things weren't OK. And that was my, you know, my my moment where like, wow, this is this is real. And that that guy came and picked me up and took me to uh, this old man that I would later call Pops. And, and that guy led me to the Lord and led me to grace and salvation and literally helped save my life. And it wasn't easy. There was countless, countless, you know, altar calls and, and relapses and, you know, setbacks and all of that uh, before finally, you know, understanding my true identity in Jesus and, and just this call that he had for my life. And I was able to um, finally put the, you know, drugs and alcohol down back in 2006 um, and, you know, after, you know, my last suicide attempt in 2005, it's, it's been a wild ride and there's, uh, you know, a ton of things that have been amazing and hard and just incredible, you know, momentous occasions where God has shown me, uh, there's a different way to, to walk in this world with other broken people that can actually glorify him, in a way that no one's really doing on, on, on the average day. George, um, everybody listening has um, already just said a prayer of, of thanksgiving um, for you and for what God is doing in and through you. Um, they want to, they want to connect with you. Like I'm hearing from all kinds of people um, on our text line. 
Um, And so let me say to everybody listening, um, yes, because you're wondering, I do have copies of the Uncovery to give away today. So if you want to text the word book to 877-933-2484, you can enter the drawing for um, the copies of the Uncovery. George Wood and Britt Eaton are the co-authors of this book. In it, um, you will hear George tell his story and also the incredible stories of others. Um, and also what uh, really Christ-centered recovery looks like. Not recovery the way you've always thought of it, but the way that the true person that God has um, created you to be can be uncovered um, through through an incredibly redemptive process, much like the one George has just, just described. So when we come back, we're going to continue our conversation with George Wood. The book is The Uncovery. We're also going to talk about the ministries in which, um, in which George is very actively engaged. You can find him at timothyinitiative.org and sobertruthproject.org. More with George Wood in just a moment. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen. As you know, this is a rebroadcast of the live radio show carried on the Faith Radio Network. There's a lot going on at Faith Radio. Tons of free resources just waiting for you and for you to share with others at MyFaithRadio.com. How does that all happen? Well, it happens through listener support. So Faith Radio, Mornings with Carmen, all available because of listener support from listeners, well, just like you. If you're a supporter, thank you so very much. If you'd like to become a supporter today, just visit MyFaithRadio.com. And again, thanks for being a part of what we do every day at Mornings with Carmen. We're talking with Pastor George Wood. Um, you can find him at the Timothy Initiative. You can also find him at SoberTruthProject.org. We're talking about his book, The Uncovery, Understanding the Power of Community to Heal Trauma. Um, George, a couple of words there in the title that are, um, you know, if we just unpack those, it's going to help us uh, get deeper into this conversation because this is a conversation about community and the role of the church. And this is a conversation about trauma and the role of trauma in addiction. So how would you have us enter into a conversation about addiction that is trauma-informed and then um, a recovery process that is community-centered? Sure. Uh, I I think the the way that we have looked at addiction in particular um, over the last 50 years has been through the lens of AA, it's been through the lens of, and I'm not knocking AA, I'm, I'm just, I want to be clear on that. I'm just making a, a point of reference that we've looked at it as a sort of this model of 12-step, this model of uh, often it's about uh, choice, it's about the decisions we make. But the reality is no one wants to be a drug addict, no one wants to be an alcoholic, no one wants to be struggling with their mental health. Um, And often when that's the only lens that we look at this through, we're, you know, actually projecting a a level of shame onto an individual because they begin to believe what's wrong with me. Why do I keep choosing these things? I can tell you that in my own personal experience of working with thousands of people that um, every hardcore addict has been through some sort of 
early life trauma, um, whether it's overt sexual, overt physical violence, or it is just abandonment, whether abandonment on intentionally or even psychologically. But something has happened to a person early on in their life, usually between the ages of you know birth to 10, or actually even in the womb, um, to 10 years old, and it has somehow helped that person um, mentally form addictive patterns, form patterns that choose things that they don't quite understand, a way of actually um, internally regulating themselves. But when we understand that there's actually a traumatic thing that's happened, then we can begin to unpack that, unpack what has occurred in a way that can actually help them when it comes time to not choose to do drugs, to not choose to drink. But until we unpack the healing that needs to happen, the, 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 you know, the knowledge of what has happened to a person, we are really just making a person go through this cycle of shame, release, shame, release over and over again. Because if you're a hardcore drug addict or alcoholic, it is very hard to just one day wake up and be able to make the choice to not use. we And even if you do, I would even say, even if a person did, they're still not living that full life that Christ died on the cross to give them because all they've learned to do is somehow avoid the healing that Christ wants to give all of us. He wants us all to be whole individuals. But you can't be whole alone. You can't heal alone. It takes an actual community of people around someone that can actually reflect the healing back to them. So uh, you can't heal in a vacuum. There has to be a, a mirror of someone looking at you saying, I see the change. I see the difference. Uh, you have to have someone that is willing to be in your Garden of Gethsemane moment because we all have them and we all have to to look at the fact that Jesus called his disciples to come into the garden and pray with him in his moment of need. Now, has anyone ever thought about, did he ask them there? Because if they prayed a nice enough prayer, he wouldn't have to go to the cross. No, we know that's not the case. It had to happen. So why did Jesus want those disciples to stay awake and pray with him? Because even Christ, in his moment of pain, in his moment of trauma, did not want to be alone. He wanted someone to look him in the eye and say, I see you. I can't change what's happening or what's about to happen to you, but I will not forsake you. I will be by your side. That's what he wanted. And he was trying to model for all of us that we are supposed to be with people, even when we can't change what's happened and can't change what's happening. But they're not alone anymore, because I can promise you that the greatest feeling of pain I have ever felt in my entire recovery has been when I feel abandoned, when I feel left alone and by myself, when I feel like no one cares, no one loves me, and I have to figure this out on my own. That's when you start to think, why even try? Why? What, what, what's, what's the point in all of this? You have to have that community of people that can look at you and say, we see you, something's happened to you, and we want to be by your side as we heal you from this so that you may live the life that Christ has died to give you. When you talk about um, the life that Christ has died to give us, you're talking about um, what you refer to as promised land life. 
cast the mm-hmm. vision for those listening right now who are are suffering, who are feeling abandoned and forsaken, who are feeling um, in slavery to um, to addiction, who do know or maybe don't know what the trauma was um, in their early life that now holds them, um, you know, holds them as a slave in a way that they do not understand, but that they feel captive to every single day. Um, cast the vision. Tell them um, the good news of the promised land life. Yeah, you know what is so amazing is if you think about the promised land in the scriptures that we see, we see that they enter into the promised land and they still have to fight battles in Jericho. They still have to fight battles all throughout, right? So I'm not talking about a promised land life that is easy. I'm not talking some prosperity gospel where you get there and it's all, don't worry, everything is happy from here on out. I'm talking about the promised land life being filled with battles. For example, in my own personal promised land life, I had been sober for three years. I was a pastor. I was a counselor. And in 2009, 2010, my brother and sister both died from drug overdoses seven months apart. And that's the promised land life. What? I don't get it, God. But what God showed me was that I was not alone to walk through that. I was not alone to walk through that with my parents as I helped them grieve two children that had just died from overdoses. Yes, I was a pastor and a counselor, and I couldn't even help my own family. How is that promised land? It's promised land because God gives us what we need to walk through the most challenging possible times we could ever imagine. We are able to be victorious, even though everything says we should not be. And we don't do it alone. There's those that walk with us. There's those that walk by our side. And sometimes we're called to walk by theirs. It's the life experience exemplified as we do it together. And this promised land life that so many people that are struggling, and I'm just, and I'm speaking right now, if you're listening and you're struggling and you're like, what is this guy talking about? I can't promise you that you will ever be completely free from whatever it is that is, is, is after you, whatever it is that's holding you back. But I can promise you this, when you enter into a true authentic relationship with the one who created you and he puts you in a place where you have a community of people around you, you begin to see these giants differently than you're seeing them today. You begin to realize that, yes, they're still there but they're not this foe that you now fear. There's something that you can defeat and you can live a life of defeating them. It's just a way of living that is completely different than you're so used to. We're, we're, we're taught somehow, whether it's through messages that we don't fully understand or whatever, that everything's black and white, that you, you should just defeat something one day and it's gone forever the next. It's not like that in life. And I think we all see that. We see it through the pandemic. We see it through everything that's happened with COVID. But we can still be victorious when we recognize that there is hope. There's hope in, in Christ, but there's there's hope in this life that is filled with, with battles we'll fight, but battles we will win because it's already been done for us. Mm. So good. George, I um I so appreciate you being with us. Um, there are folks who uh, who remember you from the times that you have been on Real Recovery with my colleague, Bill Arnold. Um, if you guys want to hear more from George, there, um, there are episodes of Bill Arnold's weekend program, Real Recovery. You can find those at myfaithradio.com. Uh, um, you can also connect directly with George 
at timothyinitiative.org or sobertruthproject.org. And again, we're giving away copies today of The Uncovery, Understanding the Power of Community to Heal Trauma. Text the word book to 877-933-2484. George, what a blessing. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. It's been uh, it's been great to finally meet you, and I hope to Likewise. meet you in person next time. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Uh, in Tampa in January. That's my plan. How's that sound? Oh, awesome! That's soon. Right. Yeah. Great. All right, all right. Um, that's George Wood again. Um, I know lots of you texting in want to connect with him. Um, let me let me recommend TimothyInitiative.org, SoberTruthProject.org. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. I'm Carmen LeBurge, and this is Faith Radio. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LeBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.